This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Horns of Odin. This week we've had a huge restocking of our mead selection and added some new flavours including coffee and chocolate meads. We've restocked the old favourites such as Scottish Blood which is a whiskey and cherry mead as well as Jolly Roger which is a rum and apple flavoured. We're giving an exclusive discount to listeners of the podcast so all you've got to do is simply add the code HORNS10 and that's HORNS10 to grab 10% off your entire order at checkout. So if you head over to www.hornsofodin.com to grab a bottle or simply just check out our entire range of items from drinking horns to organic sustainable clothing or just give us a follow on Instagram at Horns Let's jump into the episode. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns Bowden. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Yo. <laughs> I try not to sound like Lars this time. Yep. <laughs> it's a thing now. <laughs> and this week we're joined by a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Lloyd Kenwright, and he's the owner of Valhalla Training Academy over in Liverpool, England. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? All right, all right. I'm uh, going to try and tone my accent down, as I was told, so I'll try and talk as posh <laughs> as I can. <laughs> yeah, for any, anybody listening that doesn't know the uh, the British dialects, Lloyd is a scouse, as we would call them over here, and he has a very strong accent. I don't, I'm posh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, is it just me, or aren't we all just speaking broken English? <laughs> Yeah, I think I probably sound a certain way to people as well. I've got a very... So I think uh, my accent, I would say, is like blunt, fro- blunt force trauma. It's just <laughs> it's just null and uh, hits quite hard. So what have you been up to, Lloyd? Much? I know I if you've been making some maces lately. You've got into the... Yeah, I've um, gone into the fitness equipment game, just making maces to sell out, and it's going quite well, haven't you can't get any fitness equipment for love of the money at the moment because obviously everyone wants to work out at home, so everyone's trying to get something. And again, you can't order in. A lot of people are ordering fitness equipment in bulk from China and everything, and you can't get the imports. So I thought, right, I'll make my own. And I haven't stopped since. No, I mean they're, they're looking good. Obviously, I've I've got one. I've worked out with it a few times. It's it's holding together. It hasn't fallen apart or anything. You know, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a sturdy thing. No, you know, I, I'm in, I'm enjoying it. So hopefully, it'll be a nice little business venture. Yeah, it's 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 going really well. A lot a lot better than I thought it would. And um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy with it. It's it's keeping me going. And just just uh, for the listeners who might not be familiar with this. Uh, can anybody explain um, the difference between a mace for war and a mace for fitness? The, the, the mace for war, they were generally about three kilograms, I think. They were only very light, and obviously the handle was a lot shorter, so you could get more of a, a like Dan's accent, a, a blunt force trauma to the chest. <laughs> <laughs> like like the one I have in my closet. <laughs> yeah. So whereas, I mean, I know it was more for war, it was more popular when, um, I think it was medieval times when they had more plating and the sword couldn't penetrate, so you had to have this this bludgeon to crush the armour. Um, but as far as the the steel mace, which it, it originates more from Persian 
into so called the Garda. Um, that it was the weapon of the uh, the Hindu god um, Hanuman. Mm, yeah, and then it kind of originated from that into Indian training for wrestling. And it's, it, I think it's one, as far as I'm aware, it's one of the oldest training techniques or recorded training techniques is the the Garda. So getting the shoulder and like a lot of Indian wrestlers still swear by it, still use it this day. And then it kind of adapted into the mace. And I don't know at what point it kind of shifted towards being a weapon. I don't know. Maybe you could tell me that. I don't know. But. Uh, no, I, I, I am not. So one of the, <laughs> one of the things that I haven't spent a lot of time on um, in, in terms of studying history is, is weaponry that might be a little out of character for somebody who's so much into the Viking Age, but, <laughs> but we all have our little quirks, I guess. But um, we, as far as I am aware, we don't have any um, archaeological evidence of maces from Scandinavia in the Viking Age, at least. Um, I think they show up later in the uh, High Middle Ages in, in Europe in general. Uh, yeah, that's my impression. But that, but that's what I caught as well. I, 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 the amount of people I get messaging me telling me that mace and garda isn't a Viking thing; it's a Persian thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who really want you to, to know exactly <laughs> how <laughs> what the things are here. Though, no, it's it's interesting. You know, it's. I, I think they want you to know how much they know. That's, I think that's that, yeah, is. that's that's probably the the case. I I get that on my YouTube channel all the time too. When I I just it's just like, just keep scrolling, just keep scrolling, mate. You don't have to you don't have to correct me. I am um, I this this might be one thing that I may be able to teach you, Matthias. Oh uh, yeah. You may also tell me that I'm completely wrong. <laughs> but the, one of the things that I seem to remember from studying medieval history at school was, uh, I think the mace was one of the weapons of choice for clergymen. Because they weren't meant to spill blood in oh. when they fought, so like the warrior monks or like would have used a mace because obviously with it being a blunt, a blunt instrument, it wouldn't. I guess you would still spill blood, but the idea was that you would bludgeon someone to death rather than <laughs> than hacking them up and spilling the blood. And whereas the idea was that they weren't allowed to to spill blood, and I don't know why I remember that, but it's one thing that's always stuck with me. Yeah. So ra- rather than a quick death, a nice. Internal bleeding, slow cranial death. fracture, and <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's what God would have wanted. <laughs> I have a feeling that there was um, an archbishop called Odo that specialized in having a mace, and I don't know whether that comes back to like William the Conqueror time or around that era that he was someone that he put in place. But these these little bits just stick with me, and I have no idea why. But there's like could a be wrong distant bell ringing somewhere in my memory you, you might be onto something there I, yeah we will have to we'll have to look into that and and see if we can uh, find out more um I, I i don't i don't know uh much about the weapon of choice of uh, various warrior clergy in the medieval period <laughs> um i do know that uh the uh, danish um bishop absalom who founded copenhagen or at least, you know, according to legend, was sort of like the guy who founded Copenhagen. Uh, he, um, he was very much a, a warrior bishop, and uh, 
on the statue um, in downtown Copenhagen, he uh, he's brandishing an, an, a, a typical like Viking axe. So he was pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I could be completely wrong. You know, I might have just pulled that out from from nowhere, but it just it just seems to stick. Um, now before we, I think before we get into to the exercise and and that kind of stuff. I just want to ask you two if either of you have seen uh, Gangs of London yet, because I started that yesterday and I was really, really impressed. And now um, I, I keep meaning to watch it, but obviously what, with this whole lockdown scenario, I'm with my kids all the time, and supposedly it's not a kid-friendly show. No, it's quite. It definitely has these quite brutal moments. It's, without, I'm not. We're not going to throw any spoilers in there, but it seems very kind of serious modern-day gang, and then some of the fight scenes are very John Wick-esque. In their in their kind of violence and over the top, which I I enjoy, you know, I don't mind an over the top fight scene, but it was something that I, you know, it kind of threw me, and I really enjoyed it. Is that on uh, Netflix or no? It's Sky Atlantic, I think. Is their new their new show? Oh, oh, we that that's why I don't know anything about it. We <laughs> it hasn't crossed the Atlantic yet. <laughs> Maybe not. No, it, it's it's a good show. I was just wondering if if either of you had had seen it. How many episodes is it in now? I th- I think you can get them all. When I was having a look, um, I think you can just. I think they've done what Netflix do now, and they've just released them all at once. I mean, they might show one a week on on Sky Atlantic Channel, but everyone's going in that direction now, aren't they? Where they just release the whole series, so you can binge it like I did with The Last Kingdom. Oh, is this also because you guys are still like using cable TV and? <laughs> You're not not just on apps like uh, we are. <laughs> no, um, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, advocating any sort of illegal streaming, but that's generally the way it goes. I see. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> no, I think. We, I don't. Before I don't anyone, do it. I don't do it. No, you do not. <laughs> um, I, we we tend to have either like a cable or a satellite TV and you'll pay for that subscription. And then you have your apps on top of that, you know, like Disney plus like Netflix and I like Amazon prime. Yeah. So I think it just, you, you, you spend a fortune on TV basically is how it works. That's, that's what I've noticed lately. Um, yeah, no, we, we just have Amazon. Um, so, so, so we have a bunch of like apps like Hulu, HBO, Netflix and all that stuff. And that's how we watch our TV. Um, that's also how you, you, uh, avoid getting any news on your TV nowadays. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, there's a man that seems to be doing fairly well out of this whole situation. I think Jeff Bezos has been the, 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 the first ever trillionaire they think he's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who's that? Sorry. The, the thing that Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon is going to be the first ever trillionaire. Really? Yeah. Which is a ridiculous, it's, well, it's a sickening amount of money i i my personal feelings i don't see how anyone with a with any morsel of conscience could sleep at night knowing they had that much money knowing that there was people starving and they had more money than they could ever spend in probably like a hundred lifetimes and i don't i don't understand why you would want to have that amount of money and not have the joy of helping other people but that's that's my opinions does it still have if you go on the amazon site does it still have that banner where click to donate to the I was just gonna mention that <laughs> they were talking, they were they were looking for donations for the workers, and I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speak to your boss. <laughs> speak to your boss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that kind of reminds me of um, 
when you go to the supermarket and they have the little bins by the exit where you can put put food in that you've bought and then you go and donate it to to a food bank. And I always kind of have the thought, why doesn't the supermarket just take the food that's in the store and put it in the bin and give it to the homers rather than because obviously they're making a markup on you buying it, so they're profiting on it for you to donate it when they could just donate it at a much cheaper price to themselves and and just pop it in there. But yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, food waste is is a big problem. We as soon as you know um, we pass the expiration date on on some item in the store, right? They have to throw it out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that um, product is bad. Uh, yet and there was a there was like a wave of people basically uh you know getting their food from the dumpsters from from Mm -hmm. the supermarkets right that that recently expired food that's still fine um but you can't sell it any longer in the store and then they started locking up the dumpsters and even like throwing uh, some kind of chemical in them that they'll like, basically destroy. Really? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that that's at least how it went down in Denmark, um, and I'm pretty sure it's similar elsewhere. Um, I know dumpster diving is still a pretty big thing over here in in places where there's a lot of hippies, like you know where I live, <laughs> Boulder, <laughs> the Boulder area. Um, but but yeah, so so that's like. That's that's a that's a real thing, and you know I'm just thinking, and I know that there are places that do that nowadays. That, you know, donate that expired food. Yeah, I think that I think the issue with that is that I think it became popular that if you went and stole food out of one of these these dumpsters or skips, as we call them over in England, um, if you went and stole food out of that, then I think if you got ill from it, you were then able to sue. Yeah, there's some. So there's it, probably some liability involved there. Um, but then on the on the other hand, uh, I well, this is probably you know more where there's a problem with the legal system than than anything mm-hmm. else. Because hey, if you pick something out of a trash can, maybe it's on you if you get sick. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. It's the it's the few it's the few ruining it for the many, isn't it? Where you know there's there's so many people because. I, one of my first jobs was working for, for Tesco's, which is a big supermarket company in England. And, you know, the amount of food waste, the, especially bread, things like bread and, you know, um, like yogurt, milk, anything like that that has a short li- um, life, we would have to just throw it away and, like, split the bottles and make sure no one could steal it. And it, it was such a shame. I used to hate it because literally out the front of the shop, there would be people sat who were homeless mm who yeah. you know who were hungry and it's like well why can't we just take this and give it to them but yeah you know it doesn't always work like that does it there's dan ripping apart the bread and stamping on it in front of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah they said throw it in the skip they didn't say take it out and like rub it in the rub it on the floor i don't like what i'm doing mate but i've got to do it I mean, <laughs> splitting the bottles this is hurting me more than it hurts you <laughs> <laughs> that's it it's one of those things yeah, no, it's uh, there's there's something something to be said about the 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 distribution systems that we are living in these days. So uh, I think we could do that much better. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I think especially at the minute when people are particularly needy and who you know, there's a lot of people who who are without. So it would be nice if we could distribute it a little bit better. But you know, we're just three men sat on a podcast talking shit. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about Viking fitness. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, we, you know, we all try to, to write the world a little bit at the start of the podcast, like, before yeah. we go off the rails. No, I don't. <laughs> so, yeah, well, let's, let's jump into Viking fitness, Viking exercise, sport, that kind of thing. I mean, like I said, I, I've got one of your maces, and I know you say it's it's Persian in origin, but certainly from me just having a little swing around with it, you know, doing the different movements, it, it feels something quite natural that the, the warrior would want to do because it works kind of all those small muscles all the all the little little bits you know you're using muscles that you don't necessarily always use kind of i imagine all those joining fibers between it makes tightens everything up and seems very very good for what for the motions you use in war of, of you know holding a sword swinging yeah. an axe that kind of thing it's the, the the increase in shoulder strength and shoulder mobility that it gives you. And even the other day when I was talking to you and you said after you're using it, your obliques and your triceps were killing. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it does engage everything that you wouldn't normally use in just a standard barbell movement. Um, it just gets every kind of tiny little muscle that you never thought you had engaged. And it's amazing. It's, and it does, like you said, it, 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 it it's, I, I swear down by it. I think it's one of the best tools I've ever used for every, and I'll, I'll sell it to anyone. The only problem is you get people who you, who want to get onto it and you say, look, start with a five kilogram, start light because it's all about mobility. You need to get the mobility in your body before you start increasing the strength and the weight. And then you get people who just say, no, I want to get a 16 kilogram now. <laughs> like, Are you looking at like, me? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I listened to you and I, I got the six, the six first. And, you know what? I'll I will back you up on that because you know I'm without blowing my own blowing my own horn per se. You know I, I'm an extra replay. I'm a I've got some some strength behind me. You're a strong fella, and that's the problem. A lot of people don't like to use it because you, for example, you know you big strong fella. You do your um your Brazilian you do BJJ, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And you did your rugby, and then you get this five kilogram weight, which kicks your ass that's it it just doesn't when you said get a six i'm like come on lloyd you know like i've got a good deadlift a good bench press a good yeah. squat like five kilos not a lot but then i'm glad that i did because you know when you start moving it around in different ways that you're just not used to it really does start to burn um because you you made a 16 and i bought a 16 and when i got that home i was like you know i'm gonna have a go and for the next two days i could not like i say I, I couldn't move i was telling you that you know, we we were laid in bed and I accidentally dropped the remote on the floor, and I couldn't even sit up in bed to to get the remote off the floor. Like we finished, I we we didn't change the channel all night for one thing, and when it came to going to sleep, I just had to kind of like poke the floor with my foot and hope just keep going until I hit the off button, because there was no way that I was getting out of bed. I did the same thing. The first one I bought was a fifteen kilogram, because I thought, yeah, I can. It's 15 kilograms of nothing. And it was literally a paperweight. I just got it home and thought, I can't do nothing with this. So I just had to put it down and then get a lighter one. But everyone does it. It's just ego at the end of the day where you think, I'll get a heavy one. And then you've got to start light and get that mobility up and increase from there. Because I used to have really bad um, problems with me left rotator cuff, where it just constantly like a kind of elastic band snapping every time I'd do something with it. And then I got onto knee sledgehammer and these... Uh, steel mace drills and the movement just increased tenfold on it and I, I know a friend of mine who's in armed response he same thing I told him to get onto it and his shoulders far better everyone always doubts doing it because they think oh I've got shoulder problems but it's the 
exact opposite way. If you've got shoulder problems or some kind of mobility problem, <clears throat> get on get onto it because it is so good for you and it'll just sort it right out. Even though it's only five kilograms, it'll sort it out. You see, that that's really interesting for me to hear. I mean, I, uh, I've been in and out of the gym uh, most of my life. Uh, started out uh, back when I was, what, 16, 17, uh, being a massive idiot. Uh, <laughs> hence, hence my uh, uh, permanent tendonitis in, in my arms. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all my joints in my arms and everything, and uh, yeah, shoulder problems and everything. So that that sounds really interesting. Maybe I should uh, I should get into that. Mm, it is it, it, for rehabilitation and strengthening and mobility. It's amazing, and it is just it's something you can take anywhere with you. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've given up on going to a gym and just doing, you know, traditional, uh, workouts with, uh, weightliftings and all that stuff. Cause that, uh, uh yeah, fucks me up. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> it's part of the reason that I started my own gym. I started Valhalla yeah. Training Academy because I used to take my steel laces to the gym that I went to and they banned me from doing it because they said, oh, it's, you're not allowed to bring it in because it's classed as a weapon. <laughs> it, it technically is, but if you're in a gym where they've got like 20, 30 kilogram kettlebells, it's like, surely they're just as much of a weapon? Yeah, I mean, you could still hurt someone with a kettlebell, couldn't you? I mean, anything's a weapon with the right intent behind it. <laughs> but yeah, so I thought, yeah, I'll start my own gym. Fuck is that? <laughs> there you go, that's what you've got to do. But I mean, like, yeah, like, it's it's definitely something I've really really enjoyed. It's you know I'm feeling it opening, opening everything up, um, undoing all that damage I did from just static weight training for, for yeah. all those years. It's uh, it's enjoyable, and I feel like maybe it's a slightly more manly version of yoga in the sense that it kind of it is. It's there is a lot of people call it steel mesh yoga, um, because it is in a sense it's. It's not only is it good for your physical wellness, but I would say it's good for your mental wellness because it gets your head out the game when you're doing it, and it just gets you more. I'm not a I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I can safely say that when I use the steel mace, my head goes somewhere else, and I can just go. Yeah, I mean that's one thing I've noticed with it is a lot of the movements are very slow, they're very controlled, and you you. You find yourself controlling your breathing a lot as well. You know, you're breathing yeah. in between the movements mm-hmm. and it's, it is quite, you know, therapeutic at the same time has been pretty tough as well. So Mateus, is there any evidence of any sort of mace training or anything like that in, in the Viking Age? I guess they must have had some form of exercise. Yeah, so we we don't have anything that, that seems to be uh, mace-based training. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, of course, we do have uh, 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 these. Um, I mean, they're, they're, there's different kinds of games that they play. Um, like there, for instance, in in Eil Saga, there is a, a kind of um, what do you call it? Like a like rugby style game they play. Um, I believe there's also something in Yao Saga. If I'm not um misremembering um so basically some kind of ball game where it's not soccer they're not just like kicking a ball around they're 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 like you know getting into it physically right and that's the whole deal in Eil saga um 
Um, this of course ends up with a killing because <laughs> <laughs> we're white Vikings, right? So, um, what what else do we have? We have some wrestling and, um, you know, uh, sort of like competitions with strength. Um, obviously, there would have been martial arts to the extent that they did train. Uh, the use of weapons of various kinds, swords, spear, uh, bow and arrow, of course, um, axes, right? That would be like in the Viking Age, what they, they were training. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, you know, swinging a sword around or an axe would maybe have a similar sort of effect as swinging a mace around. I know... This is another thing I, I maybe remember from school, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong again. But is it is it common that some sort of soldiers of the time would have this when the fight when the archaeologist finds the skeleton that one one side is stronger or has kind of like bone damage from you know would have been used for the, the sword swinging that arm. Is that is that common? That's <laughs> That's not unlikely. I mean, uh, it's the same now. If you're if you're right-handed or left-handed, that that side will be stronger, in different ways. You know, um, most most humans are uneven in that sense, right? So, so if you are a warrior who constantly used your right hand for a sword, I'm sure that side would be stronger. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, um, and that's. Of course, like uh, if you, um, so so if you are uh, fighting, right, um, the 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 side of uh, of your body that's more exposed in a fight, uh, presumably you would, if you are right-handed, uh, you would be holding your um, shield in your left hand, and then you'd be using your right hand uh, for whatever weapon that you that you have. Um, that is, of course, more exposed, and that's probably also where you would see. Um, broken bones, cuts, and all that stuff, right? Um, in warfare. Well, as far as the the combat training, what did they do to go about that? Was the obviously I'm not saying is the gladiator schools in the equivalent of Viking Age, or was it just basically look, we're going to fight and you're going to learn from it? <laughs> I am. I I would expect these societies. So we don't have a lot of material uh, written uh, material on this, um, and. It, it is difficult to see from archaeology as well, like how organized were they? Yeah. But I would expect in the Viking Age, Scandinavian societies to be relatively organized. And you would have professional warriors at this point. And it, that doesn't mean that these guys wouldn't be doing other things too, but they would definitely be professionally trained uh, because uh, in the Viking Age, we have at least 500 years, probably even a thousand years of a very skilled warrior uh, culture in Scandinavia. Uh, latest I've actually seen is that it looks like uh, already in the Bronze Age in Scandinavia and elsewhere in Europe, we have trained professional fighters, uh, warriors. So, and that's, that's, that's uh, you know, and for a historian like me, it's a kind of, kind of like a, a no-brainer because uh, one of the things that a society wants is, is of course, to have uh, proper uh, warriors, soldiers to defend themselves, right? Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I would think as well is that 
as on a personal side, if I was to go to war and all I had was a shield and a sword, I'd want to be really fucking good at it. Like, you know, but I, I wouldn't want to go, you know, go into battle without at least practicing and training and wanting to be as good as I could be because at the end of the day, you're putting your life on the line. Absolutely. But, but uh, from sort of like the historian's perspective, the modern historian's perspective, the question is like, how how organized were they compared to modern times, right? And and we we both you know romanticizing ideas about these ancient societies, but also you know a, a little more negative perspective. This this perspective that sort of like perceives them as more barbarian or something like that. Give give different results when historians are looking at this. So if you if you romanticize, then you have like this. Uh, then, that's a typical thing, at least, you know, these oh glorious warriors who sort of like just had it in their bones or in their blood or something like that. Right. And in the same way, if you if you look at it from the sort of more savage perspective, right, it's like, oh, these people didn't have the brain power to to actually organize societies. And neither neither of these scenarios are particularly uh, reasonable, actually. We should assume at least like a thousand years ago that people functioned um, sort of. Uh, cognitively, in terms of brain power, pretty much the same that we do, right? Um, of course, technologically, not as advanced as we are, but we can ex- assume that some of the like, societal structures were similar in different ways. So, I w- just to finish this, so, so what I would say is that we can assume that, you know, we had people who were very well trained. Um, we do have the term Leithanger from uh, the early medieval periods in Scandinavia. And that means some sort of conscription. And if you look at other societal structures, we probably have had subscription, uh, conscription in Scandinavia, at least in southern Scandinavia, from the 500s and onwards. So like standing armies that are uh, professional and have been training uh, for a good part of their life to do war. Would they, set up, would they sort of, Is there any evidence of them sorting a kind of rank out or...? So we have we have like the um, the uh, uh, in the in the written literature. Um, I believe it's actually from the English chronicles. It's uh, uh, some descriptions of of what looks like formations, right? Um, we know of the Svinfilking, so that literally means like the uh, the pig formation, and it is unclear what it actually is. But it's definitely a uh, sort of like a military formation that you use in war. Okay, I, I, that's something I've heard of, and my understanding of what that would be, I think, or what I've read it as anyway, would be they translate as the pig snout or something. And I think that maybe the idea was that they would have a their attacking line, but would kind of shape into a point almost. And then when they came up against the the enemy line, that point would would break through almost the wall, uh, which would allow them to funnel through, and then come around the back of the enemy and kind of, you know, it would force through that line almost like a a spear. There's a lot of theories about this, and it's not improbable that they did something like that. Um, it could also be um, another uh, formation, but I think that's probably the most likely uh, the, the description that you're giving right there. Uh, recent investigations by uh, historians that also do uh, uh, reenactment and and experimental archaeology 
graduated from Denmark that has shown that it looks like the swords, uh, sorry, not the swords, the, the shields weren't strong enough to actually withstand uh, in in that uh, typical um, uh, shield wall formation that we know from the from shows like the Vikings and all that stuff. Like if you were holding a shield uh, of that Vi Viking age type, you'd get squashed by 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 an oncoming army. So what they are suggesting now is that the, the shields have been used more actively in battle, like to push the enemy away, to uh, hit off the sword, like all kinds of like ways of of actively using the shield as basically another weapon, right? So. You have the sword, for instance, as a stab weapon, or a slash weapon, and then you have the shield as sort of like a push. And yeah, I assume you'd want a lighter shield for that. Then I mean, I. But that's the thing. That's the, that's what it looks like. They were lighter. They weren't. Uh, um, they, they were about were four kilograms, only four or five kilograms. Yeah. So, so that means that you can't really use them defensively in that sense of like withstanding when you're standing in the shield wall. So I, I mean, and I guess, as I said earlier, I'm I'm not a real expert on this. So so um, you know there might be other things that I haven't considered in that regard. But that means then, if we look at it from a sort of like a fitness aspect, right? If if these guys were training in that way, right? Uh, that's a really like active um, uh, like sort of fighting style that would yeah. re require a lot of you know upper body strength right? in so many different ways. That also means then that they, aside from, I assume, aside from, you know, training with the sword and or a spear or an axe for that matter, and then this uh, this shield, um, they would also probably do, be doing other exercises that were uh, meant to strengthen their uh, their shoulders and, and all that stuff, back and core. So what, when before you said Dan about uh, Glimmer, I would say that's the that's the one that always pops up every now and then on my Facebook timeline from different Facebook groups. You know, you have these people saying, "Oh, the Viking martial arts glimmer," and you know, it, it's something that people have. Uh, I I think almost romanticized. Um, it's very popular. All these people are kind of, you know, I've seen people arguing that glimmer would be be more beneficial in a fight than like the modern style MMA even, and it's like, well. No, if it was, people would be doing that in modern MMA. They're getting paid for it. I'm like, <laughs> so it seems to have almost been romanticized by by some people. Um, so how much truth is there to Glimmer? Did it exist? Is it a modern thing? Is there evidence? So the wrestling definitely existed back in the Viking Age, and um, and and that I, I you could be pretty sure that 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 was something that people did. Um, uh, both in Iceland and Scandinavia and elsewhere in 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 Europe, um, because you know ultimately like wrestling is uh, is one of the most uh, least complicated uh, uh, forms of martial art in the sense of you know it's it doesn't take a lot of you know sitting down and figuring out the yeah, just just grab the guy and throw him. Exactly, in so many ways, right? Now, <laughs> you know, so many people are probably like, what? <laughs> there's, not, there's not too much long-lasting damage as well, whereas, you know, hit like physically punching, hitting, kicking, you, you know, you, you, you saw for a few days afterwards with wrestling, you can kind of 
keep going with it and, and you're not going to hurt your friend too much. No, and it's, it is a great way to build up strength in the body, right? In, in so many ways. So, so, so it's, uh, it's, it's very basic in that sense and very applicable too, if you want to, you know, uh, become uh, a very strong uh, individual. Now, uh, so, so there's a couple of things about glima. I, I, I can't remember exactly uh, when our, our first uh, uh, evidence of glima is, but I'm pretty sure it's very late. Also, consider that uh, Icelandic glima, um, uh, as we know it today, includes like these uh, girders or whatever that you like wear around your hips. So it's that the, the, the entire principle is that you lift the opponent up over your head um, by, by yanking in those. So like it's, the, the principle is like strangely like, giving each other like power wedgies or, or something <laughs> like that and, and and that's that's relatively new <laughs> I, I i i doubt that the the vikings were doing that um but uh so 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 that's that's just something to uh to take into consideration here that the glima does seem to be a, a very recent invention in 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 terms of like scandinavian martial arts if you can call it that I can hear the hearts breaking in the uh, Vikings Facebook group right now. Oh yeah, and and you know the uh, the Icelanders right now are sharpening the pitchforks for next time I land in. It's in not a power wedgie. It's wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna get chased off that island so fast. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I mean, it may, like you say, it makes it makes sense that there would be some form of wrestling. I mean, as a fan of mixed martial arts in modern age, there's a reason why wrestling is the most dominant sort of aspect of mixed martial arts. It, you know, everybody has to have a basis in wrestling. It it dominate if you have a good wrestler, they, they will dominate most people because they dictate where a fight takes place. So it make you know, it makes sense that that would have just stood the test of time because if you're in a battle and, you know, you, you it becomes a one-on-one combat, you want to be able to look after yourself. Absolutely, and you know, I mean that that's that's how a lot of uh, warfare uh, happened, right? In 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 that period, you you end up um, uh, facing off with with an opponent, right? And at that point, it comes down to your ability to take him down as quick as possible, and. Um, there are a lot of like different factors that are going to be t- determining whether or not you're successful. Like for instance, are you wearing uh, heavy armor? If you're standing across uh, from someone else and it's one on one, right? Um, and you are wearing, say, a male coat, right? Uh, you're you have a lot of extra pounds, right? Which means that if he uh, you know, got to go karate kid on that one. Sweeps the leg, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you could be going down and you could be in a, in a lot of trouble real fast. And that's even worse with plate, plate armor uh, later on, right? That's what we know from, you know, the typical medieval uh, knight, right? He's dressed in plates and everything. And he sits there on the horse. And he's really powerful on that horse. But as soon as he's off that horse, you know, all you need is a peasant with an ice pick mm-hmm. to take him down, right? Stab him right through that uh, the eyes and the um, neck, face guard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and the armpits. Um, I think the armpits were as a weak point as well. The armpits and and anywhere else where you can find some kind of weak spot in in the armor. 
So that's of course a, a little different with uh, with the, uh, the 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 Vikings wearing the the the, the mail coats, but um, but still, you you want to have a lot of body strength to to be able to um, to to like handle yourself in that situation where you're standing face to face with the enemy like that. So just in a in a unrelated question, but it's something that I've always wondered. So when you see, you know when you see battle scenes on TV and in movies, because I think that's naturally what people relate to when they see it. Now, how many people would you have had in a in a typical battle? Because I imagine obviously the population size was a lot less, and sometimes you see these armies that are thousands and thousands of people, and it gets yeah, really like Lord messy. Of the Ring style battles, yeah, and there and you know and there's everybody's crammed in there, and you know you don't have much room to move, and I feel like you could quickly just take an axe or a sword to the back from somebody you're not and sometimes you almost get these people who there's this crazy this chaos going on around them but you almost get these two people who are just locked in on each other and nobody else interferes um so yeah i was just wondering like do we know like the the, the size of the armies that would have come against them would it have been more that it was like just a couple of hundred people yeah i think you know um uh, and there again there are historians who have much better data on all of this but if you look at it sort of in a in a pragmatic rational perspective the uh, i think the average battle um in the viking age would not have included you know thousands of people there there are of course uh, you know these uh, these situations where you know you have a um the chronicles mention like a hundred ships or even more than a hundred ships. Now these hundred ships would have been carrying a lot of people. So, so that's where we see, you know, um, let's say an average, uh, Viking warship has 30, 35, uh, people, right? So that, that's a lot of people. Um, so if you had, uh, three and a half thousand men or people on the ships, how many of those would be soldiers? Cause obviously I assume they would bring some, women children with them because they, they've made camps and and some sort of life almost well in in these cases i think we're dealing uh, with warriors and so so um like when for instance the we're talking about the great heathen army in the 860s or uh, whenever it is um that's that's just warriors uh, showing up they whatever they need um of course there's probably some provisions um and other stuff uh, that that they bring with them, but whatever else they need, they take in England, basically, including women and all that stuff. So yeah, um, I mean that's the, of course different when we're dealing with uh, you know colonization uh, and and other scenarios, trade, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, when we have a, an army, they they have raised an army, and again I mentioned this term leidanger. Um, which which seems to have been conscription in the Viking Age. Basically, a local chieftain or king or whatever says, all of you people over here, you come with. Uh, they have their standing army, the professional part of the army, and then they have the cannon fodder, which is, uh, you know, your regular peasant, and everybody is poised to get on the ship. And they probably have some smart way of sort of like figuring out how they best utilize uh, the strength and weaknesses of their army. So, for instance, if you have, and I'm just uh, riffing, theorizing at this point, if you have a, uh, um, you know, uh, an army that consists of, um, say, a third is uh, your standing army, your hirth, as it is called. There, there, there was a 
word for that back then, um, the professional part. And then the rest is uh, peasants, right? You probably do something to mix it up or or uh, separate the groups in, in different ways that it makes sense so that um, you could, for instance, spend a bunch of peasants on getting through uh, somewhere in in the, the, the ranks of the enemy's army and then take them out with your professional army or something like that. Um, I'm not entirely clear on how they how they would have done that. And I don't think it's it's particularly easy for us to actually figure out. Um, but that's just, you know, from my pragmatic thinking, so to speak, that suggests that that would be the way that they would do it. I'd do it that way, see if can that I, works. <laughs> can I like, ask you a question on the, the legitimacy of the whole Berserker tribe? Oh, yeah, army? absolutely. Is that, so how did, did they get the army and be like, okay, you lot, your Berserkers, you lot are just raiders, or is it just... So, so the way that the, the idea of the Berserker... Uh, and Ulfhirtna. So there are two terms, right? We have the, the Berserkir, um, that probably means bear warriors, so bear pelts is, is the literal translation. Some have also suggested, oh, it means that they wear no armor at all, which I don't think is the case. Um, and then we have the Ulfhirtna, um, which means wolf coats. Uh, so they wear some kind of wolf uh appendage i could be wrong again that's the origin of werewolf isn't it i i'm not entirely sure that the, the sort of like the cultural history of werewolves but it's definitely a similar kind of concept um now so so we have to if we just go go deep in the cultural roots of all of this um uh, some scholars would say that these these are just like inventions in literature and has nothing to do with reality that's not the case. It's very obviously something that did exist in pre-Christian times. There's nothing conspicuous about that because uh, pretty much all societies have had, you know, um, uh, parts of an army or individual warriors or, or something like that who would associate with some kind of animal totem. Um, we also see that in the Roman armies, right? The scouts were associated with wolves. Uh, so, so... You know, it's a it's a pretty pretty standard thing. Like even in Christian times, in medieval um, uh, warfare, you also have some tendency to associate with various kinds of animals. Very standard thing. We also know this from Native Americans. We have the dog warriors and 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 all of these things. So pretty pretty normal thing. Um, now, whether or not these guys were special in a sense. Yeah, they probably were, but how they were special—that's the—that's the big issue here. Um, what do we see on? Uh, this is actually a pre-Viking age, like so the Vendel era in the five to seven hundreds um, AD in Scandinavia. What we see there is uh, imagery, um, uh, for instance, depicting a, a warriors that are, that are dressed in uh, something that looks like bear uh, or or wolf coats that that actually appears in that imagery uh, there and they must have been some kind of special warriors so that might be perhaps the origin of sort of like the professional warrior warrior like these these individuals who are trained to be a standing army they uh, belong to the king as his hirth 
and they are uh, they associate themselves with the power of certain powerful animals, right? Wolves and bears makes total sense because that would be some of the hardcore animals in uh, in Scandinavia. Um, we have saga literature that suggests that uh, bulls could also be part of this um, idea, um, and it looks like you know in pre-Christian times they had this idea that um, your spirit, uh, called Hugur in in Old Norse, was associated with some animal that that and that animal would sort of. Um, it would uh, it would be related to the qualities of your personality, right? Um, what we typically so you, you take on the traits of that animal, yeah, or that you can actually appear. Your hugur can appear as that animal. Um, that that's something that we see. I can't remember which saga it is, but there's a saga where a man is fighting another man. They're both one is in the shape of a bull, the other one a bear, as far as I remember. And they're both, they're, they're asleep. And then the hugur, so the spirit has basically left the body and is then fighting as as these animals instead. Does that happen in um, the Volsung saga as well? Is there, isn't there a case where they put on, is it two of them put on the wolf skin? But it, it physically merges with their skin. It becomes part of them and they can't take it off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so, so, and, but this situation is actually a, a more of a, a, that, that's like a longer, more extended period where, uh, where they're living out in the woods and, um, and they're almost becoming, uh, like animals. So, so, um, the, it has a lot of more, uh, a lot more like, implications for the story in and of itself, but, uh, but it's totally the same line of thinking. Absolutely. Um, the same general concept of like, there's no sharp division between human and animal here. And animals can represent human characteristics. And as a, as a human being, you're capable of taking on the, the, the body shroud, which is called hammer in, in Old Norse, uh, of an animal. And this, of course, is one of the things that Christianity is like very strongly against in the early times. Uh, because this is like straight up witchcraft uh, later on. I mean, we see this in context of witches in popular mythology and in in medieval and, and early modern Europe, right? Um, you know, the, the, the witch that uh, can take the shape of a cat and all that nonsense, right? And that's the, exactly the same thing. So, yeah, that, that looks like that was a legitimate uh, way that uh, you could be sort of like a wolf warrior or a bear warrior in, in pre-Christian times. And was the is is the truth of it about how when they go into a bit of a like state, um, where they go into a trance, and then there's a lot where it's saying it's more drug induced. Mm, yeah. So so the the drug induced uh, uh, idea actually comes from a Danish uh, historian in the 1600s. Um, he he is basically just riffing on like uh, because he's reading um uh, uh Inglinger saga. Inglinger saga is the origin of this idea of the berserker rage, where um, and this is a what in scholars call euhemerized uh, account of um, of the Nordic gods. Now, euhemerized means that the Nordic gods have been turned into humans, 
that's the premise of, of Inglinga Saga. And Inglinga Saga is the first saga in the collection of the sagas about the Norwegian kings. So that's, the, uh, that's about the origin of the Norwegian kings. And the origin of the Norwegian kings is that they descend from the Nordic gods. And here we have like this long story about Odin, who's actually just some king that came from a elusive a country called Aus, uh, Ausheimat or something like that. So, so the god world over in Asia. Um, it's like located somewhere in Siberia. And then they migrated. And, and Odin is then described as like this uh, general, this warrior who has these warriors called Berserkir and Ulfhithna. And the quality about them is that they go into this rage when, when they're in war and they will howl and scream like wolves. Um, and so the, the veracity of that saga is very low. <laughs> like, we can trust very little about what it actually tells us here. Uh, but uh, then you have in the 1600s this Danish guy, um, I think it's Thomas Bartolin. He's uh, he's a uh, sort of a historian. He really fucking hate the Swedes, <laughs> uh, and, and in, in the same way you have Swedish scholars at the same time who really hates the Danes, and they're basically writing propaganda. And this is where he's like, well, the ancient Danes were actually like these Odin warriors, and they would like get huffed up on mushrooms, and then they'd go kill everybody. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do to you guys, Sweden. <laughs> that's really what that is all about. And that's how the whole idea of like these huffed up on mushrooms, drug-induced Bursagia actually came into existence. So it's just smart talk. <laughs> yes, it's smart talk. <laughs> I mean... This might be something for an episode in the future, but I mean, how much do drugs play a part in the Viking Age? Because I assume that they don't have the same ideas of drugs as what we have now. And I guess the, you know, mushrooms will have been eaten and taken and psychedelic states will have been enjoyed. Performance enhancing drugs back in the day. Yeah, I mean, there's um, mushrooms. Uh, so um, I, I'm. I wouldn't ever go to war uh, <laughs> under the influence of anything, but that's just me. I don't know about others. <laughs> I was like, if I if I am am going to be fighting somebody with a, with a weapon right there, I I want to be like really locked in here. I don't don't want to be tripping on acid. Or want snakes to start coming out of the walls. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, so so with mushrooms, I could definitely see a problem with that. <laughs> What about recreationally um, though? Does it does it pop up? Does it play a role? There's there's no real um, there's nothing that really indicates that in the literature that we have available. Now we do have archaeological evidence of cannabis in Scandinavia. Um, there's a couple of graves that actually include that. So and that's that's uh, again no wonder. Um, of course they would uh, be uh, using various kinds of plants that could do could have some kind of you know uh, um, uh psychotropic effects and mushrooms yeah they grow in cow dung so why not <laughs> yeah um like it's pretty easy to find them the the, the magic mushrooms <laughs> you just go to the field <laughs> um aside from that yeah cannabis uh in the ways that it's available and of course also you know um uh, alcohol would, would be the primary substance, right? 
adding to that, um, different kinds of uh, uh, fungi that would uh, show up in your grain, which you hadn't planned for, <laughs> it's also a thing, um, St. Vitus dances, right? It's a thing from the medieval period where like this whole village has been, like, has because the grain has been infected by this uh, fungi. So they're all tripping. But that stuff is uh, lethal as far as I know. So. Isn't that um, a similar thing to what they think happened at the Salem Winch Trials? Is that some something had infected the, the food or the grain which gave them this this enhanced paranoia, and then obviously what ensued was the witch trials. That's 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 one of the theories about witchcraft in general. Um, but if we look into witchcraft in that period of time where witchcraft uh, trials are really rampant from the the fifteen hundreds and onwards, it's mostly a political thing. It's it's it has everything to do with the split between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, the, fear of uh, heretics and, of course, um, opportunistic uh, uh, kings and rulers that are using this general paranoia, religious paranoia, um, to tighten um, power. Like Christian IV in Denmark is a great example of that. He's like heralded as a national hero in, in Denmark now. But the dude was, was a major douchebag who uh, basically... Uh, uh, was like responsible for killing most witches, right? No, it's just a titan power in Denmark. That's all it was, you know. So yeah, I yeah. always thought that was I always thought that was a really unfair situation. Whereas you know, let's tie someone to a, a piece of wood and put them underwater, and if they survive, they're a witch. But if they die, they're not a witch. It's like there's no real win-win situation there, is there? Like you're you're pretty screwed. Nope. Yeah, yeah, you just. Yeah, you're fucked. <laughs> Could you know? I wonder how many times it was just a, a husband wanting to get rid of their wife, and he was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm pretty sure I you saw know, her floating is, last night. That is that is very often the case. Somebody wants to get rid of something, and this, what I, the theory I tend to subscribe to when it comes to Salem witch trials is that we are dealing with people trying to take over their neighbor's land. That's what it looks like. There are two families that are most involved. In, in Salem in, in when it comes to witchcraft. And they're competing uh, over land and resources. And that's usually what, you know, lies behind all this kind of stuff in general, you know. When uh, when, when somebody is marked as a witch, it's, it's because she slept with somebody's husband. Just some petty squabble. Yeah, petty squabble. That's always the case, right? Um, somebody wants to steal your sandwich and yeah, he's a witch. <laughs> <laughs> It's insane that, that that's, you know, like somebody could just call you a witch and, you know, it's going to cause you a heap of problems. Right? <laughs> but, so to, before we get too far off topic and become a world history podcast, <laughs> uh, to, to pull it back to kind of like the original topic of sports and uh, that, kind of, that kind of fitness element in in the Viking Age. Now, the one thing that stands out for me is the story of Utgarta Loki, where obviously Thor, Loki, um, and Thor's two child slaves go to yeah. uh, <laughs> go to Utgard and they're they're put through a series of tests to show kind of how how good they are, how manly they are. Obviously, Thor famously drinks the ocean and lifts the Midgard serpent. So I yeah. guess that kind of shows this this need for 
for almost strength and being able to prove that you are a good wrestler. You're, you're strong, you're powerful, you're quick. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually, so that story is a, such an interesting story because I think it's the most well-known and popular story about uh, the Nordic gods that's, that's out there. Right. Um, everybody kind of knows this story where Thor, uh, you know, lifted the Midgard serpent, drank the ocean, all that stuff. Uh, but the interesting thing is that it's uh, probably not an original myth, or it's more, most certainly not an original myth. It's actually a uh, conversion narrative to demonstrate uh, the failures of, of the god Thor. Why do you, you always ruin everything for me? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's still an awesome story. Ruin all these things for me. <laughs> I was, I was, I was going to say quickly, just, just to, for anybody that hasn't heard the story, um, I'm probably going to butcher it, but just really, really, really quickly. Um, was the story where Thor, Loki, uh, um, Thjalvi and, and Röskva. Yeah. yeah they, they, <laughs> they go on a journey, they meet a giant, they go back to the giant's house and he puts them through some trials to, you know, to keep it really, really quick. And, and so, so actually, they, 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 the giant that they meet, he, that's not the same as, as the, the, the one that puts them to the tests. Uh, that giant actually just screws them over in the woods. He takes their food and leaves. Okay. <laughs> Which is kind of funny, too. Yeah. <laughs> but there is, like I there's a little bit of magic in that as well. Yes. With, with Thor hitting him in the head and trying to, yeah. trying to kill him, but not being able to. Yeah, exactly, and um, so I think we mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's uh, actually this narrative is based off of Circa uh, Wayne and the, and the Green Knight. Um, so it's a, sort of like an offshoot of that, because the whole story about Circa Wayne is that he's such a powerful man, and then he get uh, gets tested in the same way by the Green Knight, and the Green Knight is an agent of God. Uh, to to demonstrate to to humans that nobody can ascend to the level of God, right? And that's really also what's happening here in in the story about Thor, because uh, the tests that Thor is put to are uh, basically mirror the, the the myths that exist about him, right? Fishing for the Midgard serpent, killing the Midgard serpent, as he does that, right? Um, in in that same. Uh, text it's Snorrezetta that gives us the story about Utgard Loki actually it also it is ambiguous whether or not Thor ever managed to kill that damn snake in the ocean um, Snorri writes um, some people say that Thor killed it but I believe otherwise uh, so that's the Christian perspective right there Snorri is a Christian writing about this um, so, so basically these tests mirror what Thor would otherwise do in the myths. And this is the point that I wanted to get to because uh, there are other versions of that story out there. There's uh, the story about Thorstein Beyabakt. Uh, so so uh, Thorstein is a Thor figure. He is, the story is very similar to the story about Utgard Loki, but this is like turned into a saga instead. And it's a little later. And, and Thorstein ends up in Jotunheim. Um, and this story actually is a lot closer to the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, but there, at that hall, we have a ball game. Uh, now, it's a flaming hot seal's head that they are, are playing with instead. And it's really interesting because, like, uh, so, so it's sort of like a rugby wrestling match 
where they're throwing the seal's head at, at people and they break their legs and um, people get all kinds <laughs> of messed up. <laughs> he also has to like a drink from a horn and all that stuff. But it's really interesting to see how how in this story we, we have like a, a, a rugby match as, as part of the whole thing. So is this, is this like you were talking about before, about the rugby? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um, but just like it's a supernatural version with a with a seal head on fire. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> <laughs> I can't see this sport taking off <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, what what it really comes down to is that you know, if we look at it in terms of like Thor represents sort of like male strength, masculinity. That's very obviously what he represents as a as a god in all the narratives and that's also what the christians recognize right so they come up with stories about oh yeah sure he's a he's a powerful very strong masculine guy but he's not a god right that's what the uh, you know the tests at urgaloki really demonstrates right and that's the same thing with uh, with thorstein and so what do we see these masculine men do? Well, they they play sports, ithrotr, as it's called in in uh, in Old Norse, and we still use that word in modern Scandinavian. In, in Danish, it's itrat. Uh, that's our word for sport, um, and that's that's a word that has existed uh, since the dawning of time in Scandinavia. So it's very obvious that Scandinavians did have uh, these various kinds of sports, right? And yeah, it looks like, as I said, that rugby or some kind of rugby was was a, a favorite kind of sport. I mean, yeah, that that makes sense because if you put a group of men together, even in in modern times, you know, if you put if you put like us three in a room and we had nothing to do, we'd probably end up just wrestling or something. <laughs> like we we would get into yep. like we'd get into a bicker about who was stronger or who was quicker. And we'd be like, all right, let's oh, just sort out. Here I can kick that harder than you can. That's can. it. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. That, that, you yep. know, it's such a masculine <laughs> thing. And, 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 you know, I'm sure they were the same back then that, you know, they just would, they would be sat down, not much to do. And they'd be like, I bet I can do this. Well, no, I bet you can't. And then suddenly one of you. I bet you I can set that seal's head on fire, but you can't. Bet you I can throw it at you. <laughs> yeah, and that you know that that's I'm, I, I guess that probably happens in all cultures where there's a group of men. Oh, absolutely, dude. I, I mean, I, I I still have uh, a somewhat of a knee damage from 2013 inflicted by one of my best friends. Right, <laughs> that's, that's just how it goes, <laughs> especially if you're drunk. Yeah, that's it. It's just that that wanting to be the strongest, the quickest. It, it's it's a natural thing, and and. You know, in modern times, you almost can't say that. It's you, we've almost you have to be against that idea, but it still exists. You know, you no matter how much you you speak against it or whatever anyone says, you, men have this urge to want to compete against each other. I think it's just something that's in it. It's inside most. It's inside most men that they just want to not fight, but just want to compete and want to be better than others. Well, that's that's part of the reason why, not to segue into my own business here, but that's why I started the gym, what I was doing, because I wanted to go back to that time of people just being like, you know what, let's see how good we can make ourselves by competing with each other and encouraging each other on, both men and women, if you get me, yeah. as opposed to just training, looking in the mirror, being like, oh, I'm so small. <laughs> just, go, just go back to the days of just 
seeing how heavy you can lift and how much you can throw, competing against the other person whilst at the same time encouraging. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you certainly get that more with with women now as well because it's they're allowed. It's horrible to say they're allowed to, but unfortunately, no, that, I know what you mean. that that was yeah. the case. You know, throughout, it's more acceptable. Yeah, throughout history, they, it, it wasn't acceptable. They weren't allowed to. So now you really do see with these women athletes just you know really coming on leaps and bounds and getting that same competitive streak that I think men have instilled in themselves for so long. You now start seeing women picking that up because they are competing. They are pick, you know, trying to, who can lift the heaviest, who can do this the fastest. So it's more, I think it's probably more of a human thing than just a male thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. I mean, uh, yeah, like we all, all have a competitive streak, right? Um, if, if we didn't, uh, to just like circle back to our initial talk about, uh, um, you know, uh, <laughs> this whole thing of like weird distribution systems that don't allow some people to eat and others to eat, right? Like mm. if we, if humanity, faces, kinda. yeah, it is. If humanity didn't have like that as as broad thing, like men and women didn't have the competitive streak, right? We, we would have another type of system, right? <laughs> we wouldn't accept this kind of stuff where where we're all competing for food resources in different ways. Yeah, I think it's um, important to remember as well that a thousand years ago, back in the Viking Age, that was more prevalent than it is today. You know, now there there is help for people. You know, we have governments, we have a more civilized situation where people do get helped. But, you know, back then it was a case of you had to be the strongest, you had to be the quickest, you had to fend for yourself. and And if you didn't, you we're kind of left behind almost. Well, I mean, it's a, the group uh, would have to be the strongest and, uh, and fittest and, and quickest. Um, the individual, not so much, actually. That, that's, the, that's the interesting thing. Uh, so, like, if we look at Iceland as an example, right, we have these family groups, uh, and they're not necessarily just, like, bloodline uh, related. It's also people who have bought into the concept, so to speak, in different ways. Like, for instance, if we have slaves as one, some, something that people own. But aside from that, we have other people who have sort of um, place allegiance uh, and, and then become, for instance, like tenants, tenant peasants on that the magnate's land, right? It's definitely a patriarchal system with a steep hierarchy where you have the chieftain on top and then the chieftain's family and then associated families. But all of these families are, are working together as a group, right? So they form sort of like a micro-society. And within that society, people can have different roles. But one thing that's definitely um, important um, is physical prowess, um, physical strength and ability, and, of course, also a good work ethic. That's very obviously something that always shows up in the saga literature, in Scandinavian folklore, the person who does not have good work ethic and does not uh, attempt, at least, to achieve things, that's the kind of that's the guy you don't like, basically. <laughs> you know, um, and it, curiously, I mean, in Scandinavia, a very popular folk tale is the uh, story about the ash lad. Ash lad means the kid who hangs out by the fireplace, right? So the lazy boy. Now. This is sort of like an underdog story because um, it's usually the youngest of three sons. And then he goes out into the world 
and and then he ends up uh, uh, successful uh, through cunning, right? So he's not uh, he's not physically uh, uh, strong in the same way as the oldest boy, for instance, is, or or the second oldest, or anything like that. He's cunning instead, and so he tricks some troll into uh, giving him all the gold, or he uh, tricks some. Um, king into giving him his kingdom um or you know something like that right that's always how it goes um he uh, he wins over the princess by some kind of cunning where he tricks the the other suitors and so that's like a favorite tale for in scandinavia too now what what does it, all of this come down to well the, the ashlad starts out as sort of an idiot that nobody likes right but then he shows his strength and ability, perseverance and resilience, basically, uh, through brain power rather than uh, physical strength, right? So you also have that side of it in, in these cultures that there is definitely, you know, you, you also very strongly revere the, 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 the intellect that can, you know, figure out problems in different ways. Yeah, I, say, I think that, that's fair to say. Well, I think when you say strengths you kind of automatically think of like physical strength but but having that intellect is such an important thing as well because you know you can outsmart you know you can outsmart the strongest man in certain ways and you still you know get what you want or defeat them yeah exactly and i mean that's that's also an important component to being a warrior um you know being somebody who you know can think ahead right the the person who doesn't think ahead is the is the guy who dies in the ditch with an axe in his head. <laughs> That's it. I think one last thing we we just like to touch on before we we wrap this up is the the idea of lifting stones. That's something obviously that I think it's quite common. Most people have heard of them. You know, you've got the Husafell stone over in Iceland. You've got the um, is it the Dritvik? The Dritvik stones. Mm-hmm. Um. So how much of this kind of relates back to? The Viking Age, I mean, it kind of seems obvious in the sense of this this kind of masculine thing we were talking about of, you know, you put a group of men together and they will challenge each other to do stupid things. And one of them would probably be, I bet you can't pick that stone up. Wasn't the, the Hoosfell stone, wasn't that originally, you say about it being a masculine thing, but wasn't that originally lifted by, was it a woman, wasn't it? Who, as far as I'm aware, it was a woman who originally lifted that stone because it was used to block the wall of the... The sheep pen, wasn't it? I don't know. You're... I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm sure it was... The, basically, the stone was used to block the doorway to where the sheep used to be. Okay. And it was a, a woman who used to guard the sheep pen, and she was the one who used to lift that doorway. I could be wrong about that, but I'm sure there's something about that. I I just put, pulled up the Wikipedia page on it, and it says, uh, Husafet stone is a lifting stone located in Husafet in Iceland. The stone weighs 186 kilograms that's 409 uh, pounds and was kept near a sheep pen built by reverend snurri bjornsson over 200 years ago the stone has been used as a test of strength by either simply lifting the stone or by lifting and carrying the stone around the goat pen uh, where it is located the husafet stone is known as a pen slab kviahetlan in iceland um, as it was used uh, as a door to the sheep pens. Um, 
Someone who could uh, only lift a stone up to their knees would be lazy bones. Uh, <laughs> those who could lift it up to their waist would be considered half strong. And full strong could lift it up to the breast and walk with it around the perimeter of the sheep pen. So there you go. <laughs> that's so that's so heavy as well. I mean, 180 kilos is a lot of weight to be. I mean, I could I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want him. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> it's uh, it's something I wouldn't mind having a go at one day, but I'd certainly have to train a little harder yeah. for it. I don't want to go all the way to Iceland and then be made a fool of because I can't lift the stone. <laughs> that's it. Uh, that's a little too late for me, man. <laughs> Back on the plane. I think, I've, I think I've made an ass of myself in Iceland plenty of times. Not by lifting <laughs> stones, though. <laughs> so, does, obviously, you, you've said there that that is about 200 years old. Yeah. Obviously, I think we have the, the, the Drivik stones. Um, which are also one of the most famous ones of the different sizes and and each size weighs a different amount and each amount of, relates to how much of a man you are, quote-unquote. You know, you've got the full strength, the half strength, the child, and I guess like a weakling stone. And I guess the idea behind these was, it relates back to fishing. They, they would only let you on the boats if you were able to lift the heavier stones to prove that you could, you know, earn your keep, you could hold your own out there. So do these? Do we have evidence of these back in the Viking Age? Is this something that that happened then? Well, so we we don't have like uh, a, as far as I know any any like uh, uh, direct descriptions of sort of like the sport of lifting stones like that. But I mean, it, it, it sort of like stones throwing and lifting and all that stuff uh, related to stones is definitely um, a a very common occurrence um so before we uh started the podcast we were talking about a uh, skatlakrimson saga right where skatlakrimur ail's fa- father um he um this story about this stone that's still that you can still see to this day typical folk folktale element right uh, this stone over here was placed here by this and that uh, ancient uh, legendary figure, uh, blah, 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 right? That's the situation that we're dealing with, like a little um, nip it up to saga where Skatlakrimur uh, can't find a, a proper stone to use as an anvil. So what he does is that he uh, jumps into the ocean and then he finds a giant boulder at the bottom of the ocean and then he like brings it up there. Um and obviously, this is sort of, you know, more like a supernatural element. I believe that the, the stone in question um, has probably been identified by some uh, uh, researcher somewhere and is probably giant, you know, <laughs> because Skatlakrimer, as well as Kveldurva, his father, Eil um, Skatlakrimson's uh, male um, uh, line of, of descendants, they're sort of semi-trolls. That's, uh, that's very obvious in this area that they have some sort of like troll element. Kveldurva uh, uh, is called that because he, in, uh, that means night wolf. Because in the evenings, he turns into a psycho, basically. Like sort of like the berserker that we were talking about before. He, he can't control his temper and, you know, tries to kill people. And Skatlakrimer also has a stint of that and then ends up trying... I think at some point to to kill Eil, 
And that, of course, you know, puts a dent in their relationship. Uh, <laughs> so, so there's like uh, this, these guys, right? They're as a family, they are huge and strong, and um, and have like you know a, a questionable temper, right? Which is a typical standard Icelandic way of relating people to to sort of a supernatural origin of sorts, right? Which is the case for these guys and many other people in the saga literature. Another guy that's really uh, fits the fits the bill too is uh, Bardar uh, Sneifelsaus. So he's a really interesting. His story is really interesting because they're like originally his his family is associ- is associated with Dofri in Norway, which is like the site of witchcraft um, in in Norwegian uh, and even Danish uh, folklore. This this is like this is where the witches in the 1600s would go to commune with Satan and all that stuff, right? And back in the medieval period, it's it's full of witchcraft and trolls and all that stuff too. Now, um, Bardar, uh, his name, uh, Snæfellsás, his um, uh, by name that he has, means the god of Snæfell, and Snæfell is this you know beautiful ice-capped. Uh, Possibly extinct volcano at a, at a um, at this peninsula that you can see from Reykjavik, and um, he eventually he goes up and lives under a glacier there, and like he tires of people, he gets like weird and mad, too, just like uh, Aegir's family. But uh, throughout his saga, you know, this he's got a tendency to throw people off cliffs or you know, break, break their bones on rocks, you know, all these kinds of things. Again, very strong, um, associated with the, uh, the rocks of Iceland. He's sort of like a, he's a god of Iceland in many ways, actually. He's a really interesting saga. And, um, and yeah, he's, uh, he's, of course, also powerful and strong enough to lift all kinds of rocks. So it looks like, you know, there's, there's, this has definitely been part of the Icelandic tradition, and possibly also mainland Scandinavian tradition since since the dawn of time um, in in different ways. As so uh, as opposed to like the rock carry or the, the stone lift. Sorry, is there any evidence about the whole um, mast carry? The... Yeah. So so you've got the Orm Stolson who did the the six forty that then yeah and can be. Is that like a thing that they used to do, or is that just I'm, a one off? I'm pretty sure that uh, Scandinavians have uh, have done that too. So, the interesting thing is that with the stone carrying, right? You see that in Iceland, you see it in Scotland, uh, Wales, uh, even in the Basque Country. It seems like it's a really easy way to measure strength. They're a naturally found thing. Yeah, and again, if we go back to like you know the ways that uh, men would do that kind of stuff, you know, uh, compete. In, over strength and all that stuff, I'm sure that they would be doing that in the Viking Age, lifting some kind of uh, some wood and, and all that stuff too. Because, you know, ultimately, what do these, just like with, you know, as a, uh, if, if your test uh, to, to get on the boat is like uh, lifting some kind of heavy rock, right? Um, why? Why would you do that? Well, consider the fact that, you know, nets back in the days would be held down by, by, rocks right yeah you know i didn't think of that so you need to be able to have some strength to lift those rocks right 
So that's like, th this is where these things always come from, like practical application in different ways. You need to be able to lift rocks in different ways for different purposes. When you are a farmer in Iceland, you, there's plenty of rocks to, to clear off your land before you can start plowing. That would also be the case in the medieval Denmark, um, that where, you know, Denmark is mostly made of sludge that came from Norway, washed off the mountains during the Ice Age, right? And with that sludge came also a lot of boulders that would be everywhere uh, in the fields. This, that would also be the case in Norway and so on. So yeah, so th these are like, you know, tests of strength that come from, you know, pragmatic applicability. The same with, you know, carrying wood, right? You have to build uh, houses, ships, all that stuff. So you need to show that you can actually carry a decent sized beam, right? There we go. I think that's a that's a good place for us to to wrap this one up. You always put it to you always put it to a nice end. <laughs> <laughs> we do have some questions though from uh, from people who have been sending me messages. Uh, do you mind if we take those before we uh, we leave? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so Cato created uh, asked me on Instagram what my thoughts on Viking or Norwegian accents in the shows like Vikings are. And uh, so <laughs> I, I, I don't know, like those, those non-Scandinavian actors in a show like Vikings or the, the last King for that matter, um, or last kingdom, um, they, they do an okay job at sounding not English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean um, i guess i guess it's hard with stuff like that obviously these these people are actors they're not they haven't studied to do an accent perfectly you know i mean i feel like it's a little bit harsh if people are too overcritical of them for not nailing the accent bang on yeah and also again like what what kind of accent are you going for here like okay so the typical danish accent sounds like a as I've, I think I've said this before, like a, some kind of weird Arnold Schwarzenegger from Boston. Um, so do you want to do you want to listen to that? No. Um, do you want the Norwegian accent? That might be a little more charming. I don't know. But um, going back to like one of my old favorite movies, The Thirteenth Warrior. Right. I love that film. <laughs> right, it's a great film. How oh, did you know our language? I listened. <laughs> The only problem with that one is that the accents that those Vikings have right there, and also the language that they're speaking, is my particular dialect of Danish. <laughs> Some of them, at least. There's this this big guy who's he what was he? He's like a professional wrestler or something like that. Um, like you know American wrestling, and he speaks like this this like thick Jetlantic dialect, and I can't refrain from laughing when I hear that in, in a movie. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, that, that, that nobody nowadays really manages to do a good Viking accent, to be honest, because, well, I we don't really know what that would have sounded like anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, surely, surely the dialect would have changed. Absolutely. Yeah, I think part, part of it you have to just... <laughs> You know, this is going to be watched by a lot of different people. It's going to be listened to by a lot of different people. And it has to be ease of listening also. You know, we're all kind of just used to this American accent now that comes across in every TV show. And it, 
and it makes it easy to watch. And if you start putting all these different accents in, as much as it's more accurate, it also becomes a little bit tedious. It does become annoying and a little bit tedious. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, you know, you also, you have to wonder, right? Because what, uh, you know, in Hollywood movies, what does a British accent, for instance, mean? Well, usually it means that somebody's more cultivated or saying, civilized. Or they're a really good bad guy. That tends yeah, to be the other thing. That's, that too, right? The James uh, Bond, the bad, you know, the villain. Yeah, absolutely, right? So, so that, uh, and that means that they're a cold, stone cold asshole. Right. <laughs> that, um, and that's all like American stereotypes. It's just nothing to do with European stereotypes. Right. Like, you know, when I as a uh, uh, Scandinavian, uh, what I typically associate Brits with abroad is some drunk asshole in, in Ibiza or something like that, right? <laughs> so that's an entirely different thing, yeah. right? I can't, I can't even argue with that point. No, right? That's, that's, that's why I decided to throw it in there. <laughs> you win this round. It's, yeah, we, we can't deny that one. <laughs> but it, I think one one thing to point out is that even... Even as a Brit, obviously, we, you know, I'm listening to, to British people every day, day in, day out. That's all I'm speaking to. But when I'm watching TV, if a British accent comes on, even that, to me, makes me pick up and listen and notice that it's different and it stands out like a sore thumb against the other accents because I'm just so used to hearing that kind of same American accent that you just, you know, you're just used to in these TV shows now. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, the... the, the the thing is also, what's the point of accents, right? Yeah, you, you can sort of like make something feel a little more exotic in different ways. Um, but it's not necessarily always that, that useful or meaningful to, to have those accents, um, if you ask me. Um, but hey, I mean, it's a, movies are their own thing. I mean, maybe we should do a, you know, a podcast on that. <laughs> we should, yeah. I think sometimes an accent's important. Like, it can be, yeah. Absolutely. Like, let's say, Tom Cruise in Valkyrie. Yeah. He's try. He's put, a bit of a, he's put a bit of an accent on Tom. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you, you might be right about that. I mean, there, there can be good reasons to put in an accent. I'd rather, sometimes I'd rather people just not put the accent on than put it on badly. Because obviously you get like Leonardo DiCaprio and Blood Diamond. I, now, I, I can't watch that film. No, yeah. I would. I would just. I would just rather have him. Uh, just let, let's all, I brew. <laughs> like, no. Let's all just agree to pretend that he's speaking with a South um, South African accent. Let's just pretend and let's you know. Let's just ignore it because I'd rather that than be annoyed by the accent and it it, it bug me the whole way through. I, re- I remember everyone telling me how good that film was and like literally as soon as he started talking I was like I'm not going to enjoy this <laughs> <laughs> no it's it, it, you're, you're totally right it, uh, but you know that's something that goes over uh, with the American crowd because they're not familiar that yeah. that well at least with uh, with uh, South African and um, and um, uh, uh, what is it else like Botswana, uh, you know, accents, right? So, but but like to to Europeans that are familiar with it, we're like, oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> even at the very end, spoiler alert. Even at the end, I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
the the South African accent is a very you know it it's, it stands out you know it's, yeah it, it stands does. out there so I think you know to to try and do it and then to do it badly it's it stands out a little too much I would just rather we all just kind of agree to pretend <laughs> I, I I agree with that yeah <laughs> so any more questions what we yeah so I just have one one last one so. Thor's threads uh, asked me <laughs> if uh, <laughs> I said trick trick is a friend of both of ours so yeah yeah <laughs> I kind of gathered <laughs> but I, I figured I'd just throw it in there so so he's asking about the spelling of the name of the god Freyr um because obviously what we're seeing out there are, uh, are different spellings um that have uh, you know it, it, they have different contexts so the typical way that uh, in Old Norse that you will spell Freyr is F-R-E-Y-R. And that, um, that, is, like, that is, is how it would show up um, in, uh, you know, standardized, normalized texts that represent the Old Norse language. That's not the same, mind you, that's not the same as the actual Old Norse language and the way that, for instance, a Viking would have hacked this in with runes and all that stuff. But that's another discussion. Uh, that's how we spell it today um, in scholarship. Now, he's asking if you can spell this F-R-E-J-R. And um, the short answer is no, and the long answer is yes with a but. <laughs> um so, so it's complicated as always, and I guess it, it's always complicated. So the the any spelling of that god's name with a J is a typical modern uh, Danish, um, Swedish um, ish, uh, Norwegian ish uh, um, spelling, uh, mostly Danish. Um, what you could see in 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 Norway uh, is often F-R-E-I. That's because J has that same sound quality um, as the I in, in Scandinavia. And they all, you know, of course, has the same sound quality as the Y. That's why you can use the J in his spelling, um, you know, in the spelling of his name. But you would usually not uh, add the R because the R um, has disappeared in modern Scandinavian. We don't have that uh, R suffix uh, ending or whatever you want to call it any longer. It's just, we don't say that any longer, except for the word finger for some <laughs> reason. <laughs> like, you, you even say it in English, it's finger. <laughs> but, but the way he, he asked me that, that was that he said, is it okay to be stoned? Indeed, this was spelling. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> you know, I suppose, yeah. I mean, I, I, like, uh, I'm generally a, a pretty libertarian with things. So, yeah, sure, man. <laughs> you could be stoned and doomed a lot of things, if you ask me. <laughs> That's a very... Uh... It's a very teacher answer there. Is that a teacher? Answer? <laughs> That's a very uh, yeah. I, I I would I would suppose that teachers would be like, no, you can't ever be stoned at all. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, here in Colorado, it is legal, so <laughs> yeah. Was Colorado one of the first places? It was the first place. Was it like, the first place? I thought I'd yeah. seen that. Yeah. 
but I think it was like only by six or nine months. Then okay. Washington or Oregon or somewhere else followed suit. The floodgates so, opened. Yeah, we. You know, I I don't really know anything about it because mm-hmm. I. I, I I'm not cool enough to smoke weed. I just don't. Believe <laughs> I well, I heard that it did very well for the um, for like the economy and the and the government. You know, they they made a fair amount on taxation from. Oh hell yeah, weed. man! So the Colorado's government is m- making bank on the weed. Yeah, <laughs> they that you are cool enough to smoke weed by that point. <laughs> It was also, by the way, that the the weed dispensaries were also one of the things that were designated an essential business uh, during the lockdown. (laughs) Really? Oh, yeah. Just like the liquor stores. Initially, they had said, yeah, we're going to close down the dispensaries and liquor stores. And then people were like, no, you're not. No, you you gotta let people have their let people have their alcohol and weed, I guess. <laughs> yeah, if you're locked in your house, you you at least should have the right to be stoned and drunk, I guess. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this has been fun. Thank you, thank you very much, Lloyd. That's no, thank you very much, Robin. I've enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been it's been good, and I'm sure we'll have you back at some point. So um, let let people know where they can find you on called, the the social medias. I have Instagram or Facebook, just Valhalla Training Academy. Just any questions about the type of training that we do, just send me a message and I'll try and get back to you. Yeah, I think it's, I, I want to point out that anybody who's been interested in listening to the Mace talk at the beginning of the chat, Lloyd's just released um, a tutorial little book that he's written himself. And it's a novel. I like to say a novel. novel. Yeah, so he's, nice. he's written he's written a novel on uh, on Nace training. So you can you can head over to his website to to pick that up. Um, he's also selling the maces himself. So yeah, he's got everything to to get you started. I learned everything I know so far from it from from Lloyd from bugging him personally and just asking him different questions. You know, so you know I, I've read the book. It, it's very informative. Which I honestly, I honestly don't mind if you want to know something. Message me. I, I, I like doing it, so just ask and I'll answer. Yeah, no, like I say, if if you've enjoyed the chat of the maze, then definitely pick up, pick up the book. Um, you can read it, and it's got everything in there to from be, you know beginner workouts to get you going and the exercises. Well, no, thank you, thank you very much for having me. No problem. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please just take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Leaving reviews really helps us grow the podcast and just allows people to find it easier in the search engine.